in some sense, every sermon is right on time because God is sovereign. But today it feels especially true, and I'm just preaching through 1 Samuel, so I didn't plan this, okay? But it is what I need to hear today, and I think it's what our church needs to hear today. Last week, Samuel spoke to the entire nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 12 about fear. That was the topic. He he mentioned fear several times. And he told them not to be afraid except only to fear the Lord. And I want to suggest that today's chapter is sort of a case study in fear of doing the opposite of what Samuel instructed the people to do. Chapters 13 and 14 are actually, they they really go together, but I'm going to split them for the sake of time. We'll look at chapter 14 next week, but let's begin reading in verse uh, verse number one of chapter 13. So Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. This is a relatively small number of soldiers, and it, it should remind us of Gideon. You remember Gideon and his 300 men? Okay, so Saul's got 3,000, but... Still a small number of soldiers. Verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Just a quick note. Notice that this was Jonathan's victory, but notice that Saul basically takes credit for it. (laughs) Because he's the king, right? Verse 5. The Philistines mustered the fight with Israel. Pay attention to the numbers. Thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. It's almost hard to believe that the army is this big because this is the I think the biggest army we've encountered yet, maybe in the Bible. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's a lot of people. In Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore. But so far, in Joshua, Judges, and now in 1 Samuel, every time sand on the seashore has been used, it was to describe a horde of enemies that are approaching Israel. Isn't that interesting? I think it's interesting. Okay. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Aven. 
And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. It is impossible to miss the connection between Saul's speech in chapter 12 and the fear of the people in chapter 13. They hide. And they run. Or the few that remain with Saul are standing, trembling in fear. And now we come to the heart of the text. Verse 8. Oops. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him at Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come when the days appointed, within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the command or offered the burnt offering and Samuel said to Saul you have done foolishly you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever this close Saul this close but now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We're going to stop here today and we're going to look closely at Saul's failure. He was told to wait for Samuel. On the seventh day, the soldiers began to scatter. And instead of commanding his troops to wait, Saul decides to do Samuel's job for him. And we're led to believe he misses it by just an hour or two, right? It's not long. Samuel basically catches him red-handed. 
And Samuel asks, what have you done? And notice how Saul responds. He first blames the people. They were scattering Samuel. But then he blames Samuel. You were late. And then he blames the enemy. They were upon us. They were nearby. And then, to minimize his own guilt, he says, I forced myself. Favorite phrase in the whole chapter for me. In other words, what else could I do, Samuel? Isn't this what God would want me to do? Doesn't He want me to lead? Am I not the king? So even though I knew it wasn't right, I forced myself to do it. And Samuel just kind of -of matter-of-factly replies, Nope. You shouldn't have done that. You did something foolish. So foolish that it's going to cost you your kingdom. And then verse 14 gives us the first reference to David, the man after God's own heart. Now that's the story that we read. And I think we're tempted to ask a question about fairness. Okay, Is this fair? Did Saul really do something so bad that on his first military campaign, all he does is just not wait a little longer. Is that so bad that he should lose his kingdom over it? And we may sympathize with Saul, right? Because he waited most of the time required. And in the end, doesn't a king have the right to make difficult decisions on behalf of his people? Isn't that his job? It's kind of a tough story. And I want to suggest to you that this story is less about Saul's failure and more about his refusal to accept responsibility for it. You see, the failure, I believe, could have been forgiven. But the excuses tell us something about Saul's heart. In fact, there's a really obvious connection between this story and the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And I want you to see it because it's really, really obvious. Adam and Eve were caught red-handed by God and they had broken the one commandment that they had been given. And as God approaches them after the fact, He asks the exact same question, what have you done? And do you remember how Adam and Eve responded? Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He blames it on her. God turns to Eve and Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She blames the snake. You see the defensiveness and the blame shifting, the refusal to accept responsibility Those are the telltale signs in the Bible of an unrepentant heart. And at the core, there are two primary factors underneath that refusal to accept responsibility. More broadly, this is what all sin does to us as human beings. 
But more specifically, I think it's important for us to see these two factors at work in our hearts. One, on the one hand, is what the Bible calls pride. Pride is why Adam and Eve and Saul attempted to shift responsibility off of themselves. Okay? It's not as bad as it looks, God. I can explain. God asked the question, what have you done? And we respond to Him, nothing all that bad. Okay, I'm a decent person. This was not my fault. It's not what it looks like. That's the response of pride. Listen to how the Bible talks about pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The Bible actually talks about pride quite often. And that's one of those underlying problems. The other factor is what the Bible calls unbelief. Unbelief is why Adam and Eve and Saul refused to obey God in their respective circumstances. They trust their own assessment of those circumstances instead of trusting what God told them to do in that situation. Well, I know God said that, but maybe He was wrong. Or maybe there's something He's not telling us. Or maybe He didn't really mean that. Maybe He meant this instead. The Bible has a lot to say about unbelief as well. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, these two things, this this pride and this unbelief, this is practically all sin at the heart level. And we justify our actions just like Saul and just like our first parents by downgrading the seriousness of what we have done because of our pride and because we are trusting in our own assessment of the circumstances instead of God's unfailing promises. Now, that's kind of the the heart background, but I want us to go back and I want us to talk about fear. I told you at the beginning that this was a case study in Samuel's warning against fear. He said, do not fear except only fear the Lord. That was in chapter 12, right? Now, practically speaking, if we're going to be honest... That's not easy for anybody in this room. It is not easy for us 
to not fear or to place our fear only in the Lord. And in, in chapter 13, as I, as I read, you picked up on this, right? The Israelites are severely outnumbered. And the enemy has tens of thousands of chariots. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 13, or sorry, at the end of chapter 13, which we didn't read, that their military technology was actually inferior, vastly inferior, so much so that Saul and Jonathan were the only two soldiers in the entire Israelite army who actually had swords and spears. Humanly speaking, I understand fear in that situation. Okay, so before we pick on the Israelites, I mean, this is a... We're talking about a great enemy. And I don't want us, as we read this, and start trying to apply it to our own situations, I don't want us to minimize the reality of great enemies. There is great evil in this world. This is a scary world. The Bible does not minimize the threats that we face. Okay, death, disease, financial hardship, relational conflict, the things that in this room that we are struggling with, in America that we're struggling with, those threats are real, those enemies are real. I'm not trying to minimize what we face. But what the Bible seeks to do instead, it's not minimizing the enemy, but the Bible shifts our focus to someone who is greater than all of our enemies. There is against the backdrop of all these armies, all these things that we're worried about, that we're afraid of, there is a figure that is looming larger over all the circumstances and he is bigger than those evils that we face. And if pride and unbelief are two sides of the same coin, right? If that's basically what it looks like for us to reject God and His Word, the opposite of that is simply trusting. And in this story, as well as probably all of our own stories, trusting God usually looks like waiting. That's usually what it actually looks like for us to trust God. It just means to wait. And that's all Saul had to do. Wait a few more hours. That's it. And the kingdom was his. Specifically, you know, a way to talk about it that we would say is um, we're waiting on God to show up, right? And of course, in one sense, that's silly because God is always there, right? God's never like late. (laughs) 
He's never not there. He's always showed up, right? He's always doing a million things all around us. And He may not do what we want or what we expect Him to do, but the Bible teaches us that He is always doing what is best for us. Which means that trusting God to do that in every situation, that is the heart of the matter. That is the battle. That was Saul's actual battle. Not the tens of thousands of soldiers that he faced. His battle was, am I going to wait on God or not? That's the battle. Jack Miller um, was the founder of World Harvest Mission, which is now called Surge. Some of you may support missionaries with that uh, organization. But his son John wrote a book called Heart of a Servant Leader. And that book is one of my favorite books. It's a collection of letters that his dad wrote to missionaries that were serving all over the world. He would write to encourage them. And this is, this is my favorite quote from one of those letters. Jack writes, Remember, the only real leader you have is Jesus Christ. Unless you are daily taught of Him, will not be able to make the right decisions. To get to Him, you need to pray. But it needs to be prayer of a unique quality. You can pray all night and all day and still not be in touch with His will. Prayer is not full and effective unless it adds up to our learning to wait upon the Lord for Him to make known His will. He needs to break down our tendency to cry out in prayer, Your will be done, and then to get up and still try to impose our will on circumstances. And Jack goes on in that letter to explain that what that actually is, is a demonic faith that seeks to do God's job for him rather than wait. And that, I'm convinced, is why Saul's sin was so bad. It's because he was the king. And he used his authority His God-given authority to try to do God's job for Him. And God doesn't want or need us to do that. And He will not share His glory. It doesn't matter if you carry the title of a king or a pastor or anyone else. What God wanted from His leaders then and now is to point His people to their one true king. And it is so beautiful to me that even Jesus, our King, our second Adam, understood and demonstrated that Himself. How many times did Jesus say during His earthly ministry, I'm only here to do what my Father in Heaven wants me to do? I love the story where He praises the Roman centurion who understood that mission And Jesus called 
that man's faith, a greater demonstration of faith that Jesus, that Jesus had never seen even in His Jewish disciples. Because God doesn't need us to do His job. He needs us to wait and trust Him to do His job. And of course, our passage ends with kind of this little hint of David. David is coming, but not even David is the true king. David just does a better job at times of showing us what waiting and trusting in the Lord can look like than Saul did. But that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is the only man who is truly after God's heart. He's the only one who would completely choose humility over pride and faithfully finish the mission that God had given him, trusting God even when God's will for him, this is, this is crucial, he trusted God even when God's will for him was a gruesome death on a Roman cross. Because you understand that was God's will, right? It was God's will for Jesus to die on the cross. The cross was the plan. And fear didn't keep Jesus from going. But fear got the best of Saul. And many times it's going to get the best of us. It's going to cause us to misjudge our circumstances. Or even worse, we misjudge God. We don't think He can handle it. We don't think He cares. We don't think He sees. You remember what Saul said in his own defense in verse 12? And he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he said, which I haven't mentioned again until now, he said that he made the sacrifice because he realized that he had not sought the favor of the Lord. Do you remember that verse? That was a critical error. And the reason for that is because the favor of the Lord is not something earned. It is always something in the Bible that is given. Let me say that again. The favor of the Lord is not something we earn. It is something that is given. And brothers and sisters, in Christ, we already have the favor of the Lord. It is given. It is ours. We are adopted sons and daughters of the King. We have nothing to fear. Not even death. No enemy. No enemy will stand before the power of our God. No child of God will ever be abandoned or forgotten by Him. Not going to happen. We don't like waiting because it feels like it feels like we're doing nothing, right? That's why we don't like waiting. It feels like we're doing nothing. 
someone posted a picture of an Olympic swimmer this week. And in the background of the picture was a very bored lifeguard. (laughs) Did y'all see that? And the caption said, if you're feeling helpless today, remember that they have lifeguards at the Olympics. (laughs) Katie Ledecky doesn't need a lifeguard. And Jesus doesn't need us to do His job for Him. Earning righteousness before the Father, gaining the favor of God in heaven who is holy, that's Jesus' job for us. That is not our job. And just as we wait on God in the Gospel to provide what we need that we might be saved, that is the rest of our sanctification looks like that. Very often doing nothing but waiting for God to show up. And trusting Him to do so. And brothers and sisters, I sat in an ICU waiting room for hours this week in support of Michael Ford. And the whole time I felt helpless. It felt like I was doing absolutely nothing. But it wasn't doing nothing. It was waiting. And that's what they call it, right? The waiting room. And waiting is something. Waiting is trusting in the face of fear. I may be helpless. I am. But God is not. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Amen. And thus we come to the table.